Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series covering the book of Romans. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, To the Praise of the Glory of His Grace. Chapter 1, we're going to read verse 5 here in just a moment. Romans 1, 5, give you guys a second to get there. I was thinking about uh, Norma Jean this morning. I've enjoyed worship with you this morning. Hope it's going to be a sweet time finishing out, but nothing compared to what she has got to know this morning. Romans 1, 5, let's read it. Speaking of Christ, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles. And then here's the phrase specifically for today we're thinking on. For his name's sake. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Oh Lord our God, Father, we come to you asking for grace. God, the truth that we're going to think on, it is beautiful. It is beautiful. It is joy producing. God, it gives us our understanding of making sense of this world, of how it all ties together, connecting all the dots but it is also a deep truth. It's a hard truth. It's hard for our egos. It is eye-opening, and it's going to require some humbling. And so, O oh Lord, I ask that you give the grace that is needed for all of us, every soul in here hearing this, O oh God, that we will understand this truth, and God, that we will see how beautiful it is. Lord, I can remember where I was sitting, what I was doing, the exact passage that I read when you first showed me this truth. And I just ask God that this morning, this would be an eye-opening, life-transforming, joy-producing morning. Oh God, Lord, as we all see this truth and love it, rejoice in it, oh God, and all the hope, the strength that it gives. So please, God, send your spirit to illumine your word. Give our minds the ability to go deep. Give, give our hearts the ability to love bigger and, and to rejoice fully, O oh God, to, to get beyond ourselves, O oh Lord, and to see you in the place where you reign. So help us, God. Please protect our time. Bless me to teach, Lord, all that's going to need to happen. And Lord, show your glory. Show your glory. Show your glory, we beg. And we pray all this through the name of Christ. Amen. When a husband and wife are snuggling on the couch together, young children often get jealous. You'll see toddlers kind of waddle over and think to themselves, I'm going to break this party up and <laughs> pry their, their parents' hands away from each other, try to, try to force themselves in between. As those toddlers turn to teenagers, they stop getting jealous and I think more just get grossed out. <laughs> see it as a major goal of my life to gross my children out as much as possible. 
but this jealousy that that young children feel over their parents to be the center to be the only recipient of love and attention and affection it is an overflow of the sin nature sometimes people try to interpret those things in nice ways <laughs> no it is it is the desire to rule the desire to be what everyone revolves around and all of the attention and affection coming out now sometimes moms and dads give in to that stop showing affection in front of their kids no make out gross amounts just they need to see they need to see that they are not the priority friends their self-esteem needs to take a hit needing to see that they're not the center of the universe and they're not the center of the family they do not hold the highest place and it is a great danger when they believe that they do the problem of entitlement right now it's coming out of some of this constant effort secularized effort the enemy of souls in the background stirring this movement to always try to see always humans to see themselves at the center of all things and that's another sermon for another day but here's our connection here in a similar kind of way our hearts can often assume that we are the center we can think that we hold a place of priority that is greater than we do we can think of history we can think of God's work in this world and without even really thinking about it sort of assume and place ourselves believing that we are the center and the reason behind why God has done everything that he has done and friends we can even think that God exists for me for us to think of what God has done in this world and to think that it is ultimately for us he does not he does not exist for us we exist for him we were created for him we exist through him we were created for him and in the end the meaning of our lives is all unto him our lives are only useful insofar as we fulfill our purpose of glorifying him friends all of the universe exists the angels were created the stars were cast in the sky history all has the point your salvation has the point and the consummation of this age is all going to be summed up the glory of God shown in the face of Jesus Christ that is the meaning the reason the point and the center of all things for his name's sake you know, many times people ask the question. This is a deep question, consider this. Why has God brought about history in the way that he has? If God is sovereign, he's not the doer of evil. He's not the author of evil. But he could have stopped evil. And in the secret purposes of his plan in which he is orchestrating this world, it has involved suffering difficulty pain so if God is sovereign and he had the power to, to, to stop to intervene to, to change things why didn't he why has God allowed some of the things he has allowed why has God done some of the things that he has done 
that has had all of the trials a part of it. That question has been being asked for thousands of years. Job asked it. And the very first and ultimate answer is, we trust him. We trust that he is righteous, that everything he does is right. We trust that he's good. We trust that he's loving. We trust that he's in control. I trust him. Therefore, I'm going to submit to him even when I don't know all the wise. That's the first and most important answer. And that's the primary answer given in the book of Job. Trust God. But sometimes as we, as we go a little further than this, sometimes there are those who will say things like, well, you know, we just can't know why God's done things. We'll just have to wait for heaven to find out. And that's where I want to stop and be like, whoa, whoa, you don't get off that easy. Because God does tell us some things about it. In fact, he tells us the primary reason. The issue is not that God hasn't told us the root reason. The issue is a lot of people do not like the root reason that God reveals for the why of all things. The root reason is the complete opposite of the self-esteem philosophy and worldview it is the complete opposite of humanism, which is always, always trying to put, put, put man at the center of all things, always trying to elevate his wisdom, elevates his thoughts. I'm the captain of my destiny. I'm the master of my fate. Okay, all that. That is humanism. The answer that God gives in scripture for the why of all of history, all of creation, our salvation is this. It is his glory. His worth and his greatness being known, shown, displayed, and he worshiped for it. That we would comprehend the greatness of his grace and we would fall as a people who have been saved and love him for his redemption. Here's another way to say it. God did not save you because he needed you. God did not save you because he's love sick without you. He saved you because you need him. He poured out his kindness to show you his greatness and that you would worship him for it. Friends, in redemption, God is giving you the greatest gift that can ever be given. And billions of dollars wouldn't touch the glory of what it is that he gives you in redemption. In redemption, you get him. And friends, it's God's design that you and I who are redeemed have a change of thinking. Where before we came to Christ, we saw ourselves as the center of all things and the point of all things. We thought of ourselves in the highest of categories. In redemption, God gives us new eyes, a new way of seeing where we begin to see something a whole lot more beautiful than yourself. A whole lot more beautiful than me at the center of all things. We begin to see God in his rightful place and love it. Love him for his glory. Here's another way that the Bible, the Bible will say this a lot of different ways. Here's another way. God has prepared worship for himself. God has worked in such a way that men and angels would see his glory and fall on their face in worship to see him. The meaning of history, the meaning of your life is encapsulated in these four words in verse five, for his namesake. We're going to study that this morning. I only have one point, one premise. I already told it to you. 
God does all things for the display of his glory. It would be another whole sermon that we will get to in, in, in chapters uh, 5 and chapter 8 of Romans. We will get to it, this whole other sermon. But I do want to go ahead and just tell you this part. It is the most loving thing God could ever do. There is no greater gift. There is no greater mercy that God could ever give than to, to give you the gift of himself. So just like I would say that in the family, when, when a mom and dad get the priorities right and don't elevate their child to the place of godlike status, it's good for the child, okay? Like it's child abuse to make them think they are gods. It is good for them, loving for them to know their place in a similar kind of way. Our flesh longs to be in the highest place of, of, of priority. But when we get lowered and we see God as elevated, there's no greater joy that you will ever know. It is beautiful to know the glory of God and to get the greatest gift that can be given. So this is the one point that we're going to look at. We're going to do this by walking through passages from the Bible. Uh, hope you got your fingers nimble and ready to roll. We're going to go through the Bible um, and then... I had a whole list of dozens of other passages we just won't have time for today. I am going to tell you them to you at a certain point. You can jot them down, read them through. We're going to look at several passages. We'll do that for most of the time. And then at the end, I want to do just a little bit of summary, a little bit of application to kind of tie things in together. So let's begin by, I just want the language of Scripture, the language of Scripture to just seep in and show you its truths. So first passage, jump back to the Old Testament, please. Go to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. If you're not yet uh, fast enough with the Bible to keep up, that is no big deal. Do your best. I'll read them out loud. Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 13. And let's begin to see this. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from, from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. This is a very helpful, helpful one for us to begin with, and here's why. When the Bible says that God is sovereign, and by the way, as the Bible teaches this, Many of the passages are dealing with God's sovereignty over history, events, and salvation. There's a big point there. But when the Bible says that God is sovereign, we need to know the full measure of what that means. That doesn't merely mean that God is along for the ride of history. You know, he can see into the future and whenever he sees something going on, he, he, he jumps in to make sure he fixes some things he doesn't want. That, that's not the way that our God works. God is not reacting to the events of history. He does not merely see into the future. God has ordained. God has decreed. God is orchestrating history to come about in the end in a way that he wants. Now, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's mind-blowing still that yet that we are free. We are free creatures. We're not robots. We make decisions. Um, 
he is at work. There is an enemy who is influencing in this world, choosing evil. You got all of these forces all together, but still yet reigning as sovereign over all of it. God is working his purposes. And there are some hard parts of that. Here's one of them. Even the wicked fulfill purposes in God's plan. God raised Pharaoh up. God put Pharaoh in the position of Pharaoh so that he would enslave the people. So that God, in his purposes, glorious plan, would save them out of this and show his glory. God even says to Pharaoh, I raised you up. You're Pharaoh because I made you Pharaoh. I knit you in the womb. I orchestrated history so that you would come to the throne, so that you would be seen as the most powerful man on the planet, so that I could conquer you before all the eyes of the earth as nothing. And they would see my might and my power, and they would fear me. Are you starting to see why this isn't popular? Are you starting to see why there are some who hate this truth? There are people who have, dramatic quote here, left the faith after learning these truths. But I do want to tell you, if you leave the faith from learning a truth of the Bible, you are never truly in the faith. But I have known people who were going along with this whole church Christianity thing and thought of themselves as followers of Jesus, come to learn these things, throw a Bible on the ground, declare, I will not serve a God like this and walk away from this. There are many people who will talk about loving Jesus and what they love is a Jesus they've imagined in their own minds who does what I tell him he can do and behaves how I say, but the God who unapologetically declares that all of history has been ordered for the purpose of displaying his glory. A lot of people hate that God, but here's all I can tell you. He's the only God. This is the reality. He is bigger than you and I have ever comprehended. Jump to the book of Numbers real quick, please. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14, beginning in verse 11. A little bit of uh, help before we read this. You will misunderstand this passage if you think this. We're going to read a section here where God shows his anger over sin and Moses prays for the people. He intercedes, asks God for mercy. But you misunderstand the passage if you think that God flies off the handle and he almost loses his temper. But you know, Moses, you know, the God's counselor, talks him down, calms him down. That's, really, that's not what's happening here. What do you think about this? If God didn't give us passages like this, if events like this didn't unfold, how would we know what was going on in the heart of God? How would we know how he feels towards evil if he did not show us some things like this? There is a bit of a drama that is, that is uh, uh, played out here before us. God shows his anger and shows what his just wrath would do for their sin. And Moses in a metaphor helping us to understand how Jesus' blood intercedes on our behalf, Moses asks God for mercy. So watch this unfold and look at the motives of God and why he does what he does. So Numbers 14, beginning in verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? 
How long will they not believe in me despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst? I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them and I will make you, Moses, into a nation greater and mightier than they. You see, God is angry over their disregard of him. Verse 13, but Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear of it. For by your strength, you brought up this people from their midst and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath. Therefore, he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. He will by no means leave the guilty, excuse me, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have also forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. So let's ask this question here. Why did God not destroy them. There are answers that we're tempted to give and sometimes are thought of. The answer of things like, well, you know, God just couldn't bring himself to do it. He just, his heart just aches for them so much, he just couldn't bring. That's not the reason given here. Now, we're not at all saying that God is not loving. God's love reaches to the heavens. You have never loved anyone to the magnitude and power that God loves. But that is not the reason why this gives here. The, this is a people who deserved wrath. They deserve, it would be righteous and just. So why did God not? He says, for his fame, for the sake of his name. If the nations heard of God destroying this people, they wouldn't understand why and they would think something wrong about God. And so for the purpose of them not misunderstanding him, God spared them and gave them mercy. There is a danger when we don't understand these truths. There is a danger when we don't know why God does what he does. It's because of all of the other kinds of motives that our minds can think of for why God would. When people don't know these truths and don't know about God's holiness and such, they think of God as the big grandpa in the sky who's just always my cheerleader and whatever makes me happy, that's what makes God happy. Do we not hear this perspective all the time? That's a man-centered way of thinking. And what God is doing, he's knocking that wall down and he's showing us the truth. God-centered thinking is the reality of this world. The cosmos does not define itself by us. The cosmos is defined by God. All things are from him, through him, and to him. It's all for him. Jump to the book of Isaiah with me, please. 
We are skipping over a lot from the Old Testament. The Psalms have a great deal um, to say about these things. Oftentimes it's more subtle in the Psalms, but there's, there's much there. Psalm chapter, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah 48, find verse 9. Isaiah 48, beginning in verse 9, For the sake of my name I delay my wrath, and for my praise I restrain it for you, in order not to cut you off. Behold, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake I will act, for how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. This is surprising oftentimes. When people first learn that God talks like this, this is in the heart of God, that he's not doing all things for me. He says, for my own sake, how can my glory be given to another? Now we're going to get to the part about the why and the righteousness of God in this. But for now, we just need to see it. Just need to be overwhelmed by the language of it. Jump to the book of Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 6. Ezekiel 6, find verse 7. The slain will fall among you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Jump down to verse 10. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster on them. Jump to verse 13. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Verse 14, very end. Thus they will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 4. My eye will have no pity on you, nor will I spare you, but I will bring your ways upon you and your abominations will be among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. You're starting to get a hint here as to what is happening. We could keep going. I counted 69 times that phrase is used in this book then you will know that I am the Lord. That's almost 70 times that phrase is repeated. God says of his judgment, then you'll know that I'm the Lord. God says of the redemption that he's bringing to them. He says, I'm going to judge you, but I'm going to bring you back into the land. He says, then you will know that I am the Lord when my word is fulfilled. I'm working all these things so that you will know Consider this, friends. God is working all things in this world so that all will know that he is the Lord and that he is glorious. God puts beauty in the skies. You know, number one, just because he's an awesome artist, creative beauty, he puts it out there, but he does it in a way so that we'll see it, so that we will know that he is a wise and masterful artist. God causes amazing things to happen in this world, like hurricanes, comets, photosynthesis in plants, eclipses of a thousand other astounding parts of this world that we look at it and we're, we're baffled in wonder. He does it in a way that we see it so that we will know that he is almighty. God brings about events that are ironic in his providence things that are baffling and such even in your life so that we will know he is ruling over history. For God's people, 
God works in ways in your life where you, you sense God's kindness, kind grace comes to you even in circumstantial ways in your life so that you will see his kindness and God allows atrocities. He sends calamities in this earth so that all the world will understand, so they will see the God who rules, he is ticked. All is not well. I mean, so consider this, friends. You, you combine this with what we're going to see in Romans chapter 1. God has worked in such a way that these divine attributes, Romans 1 will say, are clearly seen. There's beauty in the world. There's providence shown in the world. There's grace shown in the world, that there is calamity shown in the world so that even the unbeliever who doesn't accept the scriptures, if they are honest with themselves, they look around this world, they know there is a creator and this creator is beautiful, artistic, ruling over history. He's gracious. They can understand some sort of kind of righteousness and understand that this righteousness comes from him and also understand from catastrophes in this world that this ruling God is not happy about something. Something has him angry. God is showing these divine attributes in a way that all will know. And on the day of judgment, Scripture says that when everybody stands in front of him, all the excuses that people made, because atheism is an excuse, Okay, it's a joke, it's fake, it's, it's, it's not real. It is a fake thing to look at the world and say, I don't really believe it's, I don't really believe there's anybody there. That's fake. On the day of judgment, when everybody stands in front of God, they will have to acknowledge in honesty, deep down in their hearts, they knew these things. They knew these divine attributes and ways that God displays his character, his greatness, his might, and a way, of, a way of describing all that is great and awesome about God is to say his glory. His glory is all that is splendid and majestic about him. God is working so that men and angels will see his glory and marvel and worship one way or another. Those who trust Christ and love him worship in joy. But when God subdues all of his enemies, the demons will bow when they are conquered. And they will give him glory, not happy glory, but the glory of an enemy who recognizes the worth and authority of the one who has conquered them. Jump to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20, find verse 4. Last part of that verse there says, make them know the abominations of their fathers. Verse 5, and say to them, thus says the Lord God, on the day when I chose Israel and swore to the descendants of the house of Jacob and made myself known to them in the land of Egypt, when I swore to them saying, I am the Lord your God, on that day I swore to them, to bring them out of the land of Egypt into a land that I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all the lands. Stop there for just a second. Let me tell you what God is doing. 
God is giving a logical argument here. He's reasoning with them to help them feel why he is sending judgment on them and why he has acted in the ways that he has. And he starts off by showing this. When you were in Egypt, I came to you. I made promises to you. I, 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 gave, I gave you grace and opportunities, such sweet opportunities. And, and I, I gave you this promise. I'm going to deliver you out and I'm going to bring you into a sweet land of promise. But then verse 7, I said to them, cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So God made promises to them, but he gave some conditions. Get rid of your idols. Obey me. Get rid of the things that dishonor me. Verse 8. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Here's the next step in the logical argument. Okay. God made sweet promises. He told them, but get rid of your idols. I'll do all these merciful, kind things, but get rid of your idols. They rebelled against him. When they rebelled against him, what is the just, perfect, and righteous response that this deserves? His wrath. So he said, I was going to pour out my wrath on you. I was going to destroy you. Is that what God did? No, and he shows the reason why. Verse 9, but I acted for the sake of of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. God gave them grace, but here's where we got to interject. Not because they deserved it. Not because God needed them. Not because God was lovesick. Not because... God loves people more than anything and more than anything he is devoted to their happiness. That's not it. God is devoted to the glory of his name higher than anything. But here's the part that we also need to see. That's for our good. That's for our good because you and I, like Israel in the wilderness, deserve the wrath of God. God has not poured out that wrath on us believers, us who are in Christ. We have the hope of eternal life. And why has God done this? For the sake of his name, for the glory of his name, that we would come to love him for his glory and what he has done. God shows mercy. Now the passage continues on. There's more that we could read. You can jot down verses 11 to 22 for you to read on your own. But jump to Ezekiel chapter 36 as I try to keep us moving here. Ezekiel 36. Find verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares 
the Lord. Now, the Old Testament has many, many more. Let's jump to the New Testament because there are a few really important ones we got to get to in our time. So, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, the, the, the song we sang this morning to the praise of the glory of His grace is based off of Ephesians 1 and this passage we're going to read. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 3, here's what's going on in this passage. Similar to what we looked at last Sunday, kind of an overview of the grace of salvation, Ephesians 1 begins with a celebration of all the amazing things that God does for us in salvation, all of the great grace that is given to us in salvation. But this passage will also repeat four times. Look for it. Four times it will repeat the root why, the why behind all things. So beginning in verse three, watch for it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. In him also we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will to the end. So here's the reason that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So what was repeated over and over in that passage? To the praise of his glory. Sometimes it's worded like this. To the praise of of the glory of his grace. It's not a subpoint. It's repeated numerous times. It's a major point that God wants us to see. Here are all these glorious gifts that God does in salvation, and here's the why, the end, the purpose to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's a nice spiritual sounding phrase. Sometimes we use phrases like that. They sound good. We don't really know what they mean. So what does it actually mean? It means God saved you so that his grace would be shown and marveled at and loved. God did not save you because he needs you. God did not save you because he owed you. He didn't save you because he doesn't care about sin. That's a lot of times the conclusion that people come to. You know, there's heaven, God doesn't care about sin. No, no, God saved you, not because he doesn't care about sin. He cares about sin so much, Jesus had to die. Wrath had to be spent on sin. 
He saved you for His name's sake. He saved you so that His glory would be shown. All right, so let's consider this. When you see something gorgeous, something breathtaking, and you marvel at it, you know, when the Christian sees something amazing, the Christian is saying, my God made that, and that is amazing. There's a, there's a glorying that happened. Um, Wayne and Elaine took a trip out west, and I asked permission to use this. Wayne and Elaine took a trip out west just a couple weeks ago, and Elaine was telling me the story last Sunday that they, they, they drove to the, the top of this, this great knob, like a high elevation, and all of a sudden they turned this corner, and there is the Missouri River in the bottom, big sky up top, beautiful valley, big sky, sees all this. Elaine said that she was overwhelmed to the point that she began to get teary-eyed in looking at this it was so breathtaking now I love that because man oh man there's a whole lot of not knowing what to do with beauty right there's a whole lot of facing the phone all the time and don't even know what glorious things are so I love the whole see glory and know what to do with it you know what you do with it you marvel at it you bask in it you're just like my God made that okay at that moment you are worshiping The Christian marveling at God is worshiping, but what part of God's glory are you marveling at? What part of God's glory is being exalted at that moment? Well, it's not God's judgment. Not at that moment. It's not God's holiness. It's not that you don't love God's holiness, but at that moment, another part of his character, his greatness, his splendor, his awesomeness is on display. What is on display? His creative, mighty power to make and design and and to create beauty. That's on display at that moment. There are other parts of God's glory. You know, Revelation shows us this. When God subdues the wicked and he unleashes the fury of his white hot wrath, believers and angels will marvel. There's a chapter in Revelation talking about how we will sing in worship. We will marvel as we see the fury of God unleashed. We will worship God for his righteousness, his justice, because that's part of his glory. And I hope you're not so ate up with humanism, you can't imagine yourself doing that. As a Christian, we're on God's side after all. God's judgment is not something to despise. God's judgment is something to glory in, his righteousness. So there's another part of his glory. But here's the part of God's glory that he most wants put on display. That he most wants loved and marveled at. It is his mercy and grace in Christ What God has done in saving sinners is the part of his glory that gets the the brightest spotlight put on. We're going to worship God for all of his glory, every part of who he is, but his mercy and grace in Christ shows his glory in a way that nothing else does. Friends, you were saved so that you would be grateful for your salvation. And in your gratitude and worship in loving him for your salvation, you are fulfilling the reason you have been made. When you sing hymns that exalt God's mercy, you are fulfilling the reason you exist. But there's more. 
God also saved you so that you would be a display of his grace and love to the angels. This is an aspect we don't give a lot of thought to, but the Bible brings up on occasion. The angels are moved to worship by seeing God's mercy shown to men. Remember Luke 15? Talking about uh, every time a sinner repents and trusts in Christ, the angels of heaven rejoice. The celebration of God's glory, the worship that is going on at all times in heaven is further fueled, re-energized every time God saves another and another and another and another. The angels marvel and celebrate the grace of God. And there's more. The demonic forces of darkness led by the adversary see the mercy of God triumph in saving sinners and God is glorified as the enemy is humiliated. God is using all of this as a display of his glory. Believers and unbelievers, angels and fallen angels will all see his glory in the end most spectacularly in the grace he has shown in saving sinners. All right, another one, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. I'll just read this one very quickly. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, so there's language that is telling you, here's why, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why have you been saved, people of God? You have been saved so that you will exalt God, and we do that. We glory in him. We display his glory when you personally worship. You're by yourself and you worship. You're fulfilling your purpose. But Peter's talking about another way here. You are fulfilling your purpose of glorifying God when you tell others the excellencies of God. When you share the gospel, you are engaging in an act of worship. Evangelism is an act of worship as you call other people to see the glory of God. Now we're only gonna look at one last passage here. Uh, We could keep going. Before I do that, let me rattle off some of the others that you may want to study on your own. Exodus chapter 20, verse five. Joshua 4, 21 to 24. Psalm 46.10, Habakkuk 2.14, Romans 11.36, 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20, 2 Corinthians 4.15, Colossians 1.16, Titus 2.14. If you want some more of those after the service, I'll give them to you. One more, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Once again, in the context of God's sovereignty, find verse 14. What's being discussed here is God's sovereignty in election. And a lot of times people don't like that doctrine and they reject it because they say things like, that's not fair. God's not supposed to do things like that. And what they're really getting at, that would be unjust. It's, it's interesting that that entire discussion is right here in Romans 9. The question is asked, is God unjust in doing that? The answer is no. Verse, nine. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? 
may never be. For he says to Moses, he's making the point here. This was even taught in the Old Testament. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Jump down to verse 22 as we get to our point here. Why has God done all this? Verse 22, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory you christian are a vessel prepared for mercy to be shown to you because god has wanted you to know the glory of his grace so that you will rejoice in his grace you will love him for his grace and you'll spend your eternity worshiping him as someone who has been saved from hell will well let me address what is usually the number one question in regard to this truth so if you're learning this for the first time you know i hope i hope number one you're saying all right bible shows it i submit to it but you might still have questions. Here's usually the first question that comes up with this. Sometimes people will ask, all right, I don't want to question God, but it sounds kind of selfish. Like, is this right? Is God allowed to call attention to himself and to do these things for his glory? Well, let me answer that three quick ways. Number one, yes, God is right, okay? He's righteous. Everything he does is righteous. Trust that. But number two, here's the reason why it is right. There is a reason why it is wrong for you and I to call attention to ourselves and to do things for our namesake, and it is right for God to do it. Here's the reason. It is because of God's infinite worth. It is because of his infinite value. He is infinitely glorious. When you and I walk through this world, if we call attention to ourselves, boast, exalt ourselves, do things for the sake of our fame and our name, the reason why it's wrong is I'm not the treasure that will satisfy all men's hearts. And you aren't either. You men, you might like to flex your muscles show off in some various ways, do things so as to gain attention. Ladies might be tempted to show off in some ways, show your beauty. You might be strong. You might be beautiful. But men nor women, you are not the treasure that will satisfy the hearts of men. God is. He is the great treasure. He is the one worthy of all worship. God is infinitely beautiful, infinitely perfect in all of his attributes. He's infinitely beautiful. Consider that, just, just that one for a moment. Are there beautiful things that captivate your attention? Yeah, I can think of numerous. I just love to sit and watch a sunset, things like this. You can think of things that are so gorgeous, you enjoy watching them. 
the most astounding sight you have ever beheld is a toddler's coloring page compared to the beauty of God's glory. He is infinitely beautiful, infinitely astounding. Is there anyone you enjoy being around that you're just sort of magnetically drawn to them? You, you love spending time with a person. Their attractiveness is nothing compared to what it will be to be in the presence of God. Do you have any heroes? Do you have anyone that you look up to, role models? I, I don't mean this in the literal way, but kind of that proverbial way. Anybody that you kind of like idolize and you just love getting to be with them, there will be nothing compared to what it will be to be at the feet of Jesus Christ, magnifying him, worshiping him. God is infinitely glorious, infinitely worthy, infinitely righteous, infinitely worthy of worship, infinitely worthy of being loved and adored. You're not, and I'm not. That's why it's wrong for you and I to call attention to ourselves. We can't satisfy the great desires of our hearts, but God does. He is what you have been longing for. The glory you are chasing, it's in him. And then here's the third reason. It is the most loving thing that God could ever do to show you his glory. If you were sitting inside with that phone glued to your eyes and outside the most amazing sunset that had ever occurred in history was happening, it would be a gracious thing if the sunset were to call to you and to say, hey, you're going to want to come take a look at this. Put your stupid phone down. Come look at this. Now, the sunset's calling attention to itself, but it is a loving act. It is serving you because it is calling you to something that is better. If the, most, if the singer with the most beautiful voice in history if, if there was a lady that had, had a voice so wonderful, deer in the forest laid down to hear her sing. If she decided, you know, I'm going to stop singing publicly because when I do, I'm displaying this great voice and people give me attention and that must be wrong. So I'm going to stop doing it. We would reason, no, 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 no don't. You're misunderstanding this. We love it that you display this great voice. We enjoy it. It's a good thing for this to take place. When a wife displays the fullness of her beauty to her husband and he alone, she is displaying her beauty. She is calling attention to herself, but to the delight of her husband. It is the joy of both. When a husband works in such a way, does something valiant, maybe something heroic, he does his best, he fights his best, he works his best, and his wife looks on and admires and respects him. Yes, there's been a display, but to the delight and joy. One of the reasons we have trouble comprehending this is we have trouble understanding a win-win situation. When God displays his glory, he is exalted to the place that he belongs. He is rightfully worshipped, but we are served. It is the most loving thing that God could do to display his glory and give us more of himself. He who is infinitely beautiful and infinitely worthy. We are saved so that we would be a people who are given the ability to behold the worth of God. Well, here's the final kind of application at the end. We're, we're almost done. Just hang in just a second here. 
Christian, the meaning of your life is to show that God is great. And do you see how that perspective is a life-changing one for every day's decisions? You know, when cultural Christianity describes life, they describe it so differently from this. There are so many songs on Christian radio that need to be scratched. So many books in Christian bookstores that need to be brought to the parking lot and burned because they describe a scenario like, you need Jesus because you don't want to go to hell, do you? No, you, you want to escape hell. So you need Jesus. And once you get your Jesus thing taken care of, all right, now listen to your guidance counselor. Listen to all those messages. You go build yourself a great life. Build your own little kingdom in the sand. You get your piece of the American dream. You strive. You, you work. You build yourself this good life. And hey, you know, you need to keep Jesus happy because he has the power to make your dreams come true. And so you want your dreams to come true, don't you? Well, you keep him happy. And then, you know, you build this great life. When it comes time to die, you know, that stinks. But at least you're not going to hell and you can know you, you made yourself a good life. Cultural Christianity speaks as though God's job is to give me a happy, nice life. What scripture is telling you is this. God doesn't exist for you. You exist for him and your meaning of life is to glorify him. God's job is not to bless your will and your plan for life. Your job is for your life to be reformed, remade, so that you get on board with his will and his purposes. He is building a kingdom. He is building a church. God is spreading the fame of his name to the ends of the earth. God is bringing the message of the gospel to the corners and shadows of the jungles. You and I need to get on board with his purposes and make our lives about his glory. You and I are not the priority. God is the priority. Christian from him and through him and to him are all things. And non-Christian, if you have not yet turned to be saved, repented of your sins, trusted in Christ to be saved, the meaning of your life is to show God's glory as well. You know, many of us, before we turned to Christ, many of us Christians, before we came to him, we used to kind of comfort ourselves with these ideas that God's job was to make sure we were happy. And so when we thought about eternity, we, we felt we had nothing to worry about. We just assumed that everything would be fine. You might have that kind of thinking in your head this morning. And I just want to invite you to read scripture for yourself and see a totally different perspective. And see, this is not how it works. You were created to know God, love God, obey God, and walk before him blamelessly. And you've not done that. Just as we Christians have not done that, you have sinned. That's why Jesus came to die. He came because you need to be saved from your sins, saved from the hell that your sins really do deserve. So stop assuring yourself that everything's going to be okay Stop telling yourself, I'm sure in the end, everything will work out because I'm, I'm, I'm a nice guy. God is saying a different message to you. You have profaned his glory. Like Israel in the wilderness 
You have robbed him of glory. You have gone after idols. You have broken his law. And compared to other humans, sure, you, you may be nice, but you are not righteous enough for God's heaven. You need forgiveness of your sins. You need to stop ignoring God and to come to a place, a perspective where you submit to him, trust in him, and begin a path of following after him. And friends, the good news this morning is he offers you salvation right now. You can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light right now. Turn from your rebellion and your sins. Turn your heart to him and trust in Christ. Call out to him and you will be saved at that moment. You enter the kingdom of God and your life then takes on a new course. Trust in Christ. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Oh Lord, glorify your name. Hallowed be your name to the ends of the earth. We ask, oh God, that you will show us your glory. You will hallow your name in our hearts that we would come to see your greatness in a way we never have before, that we would come to behold your beauty. And then, God, we pray, hallow your name through our lives. Father, make us into a people who live in such a way we show the world your greatness. We proclaim your excellencies. And we pray, God, you hallow your name to the ends of the earth. We pray, God, that you raise up missionaries, laborers, evangelists, believers, workers who will labor here and go to the ends of the earth to the last of the unreached tribes and people groups who have not yet heard the name of Jesus, Lord, and that they will come to know of your fame and trust in you. Please, God, raise us up, send us out, and make us a people who live for your glory. We ask these things through Christ. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled, To the Praise of the Glory of His Grace. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.